Please do turn with me this morning to the first letter of Timothy, 1 Timothy in chapter 3, and our text is found in verse 16, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, 1 Timothy is after 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy 3, 16, we read part of this verse, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. My subject and title this morning is Incarnation Wonder. Incarnation, God became man. Wonder, awe, astonishment, amazement. I can't use words, adjectives grand enough to explain, but this verse does very well. Without controversy, there is no shadow of a doubt, not the slightest hesitation. Great is the mystery of godliness. The word godliness there is different to the way we normally use it. It means the gospel, the scheme the plan, redemption, great is the mystery. Truly, it is great. It is unfathomable. We cannot comprehend the greatness of the plan which God has conceived, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before time began, this, without a shadow of a doubt, is the greatest plan. The word scheme sounds too artificial. This is the greatest imaginable, organized plan. The word just doesn't do it justice. Mystery of godliness. So at the same time, this is an indisputable fact. This is what it says. God was manifest in the flesh. It's a fact. It's a fact of history. Nobody can doubt it. You can doubt Julius Caesar, Alfred the Great. You can doubt Pliny, Josephus, because... There are far more manuscripts, five and a half thousand, attesting this book, the Bible, its historicity, its authenticity, all those other characters of history. There's just a few pieces of paper, papyrus, remaining. Christ is solid factual history and Jesus Christ come from heaven that's an absolute fact don't even try to doubt it God was manifest in the flesh but at the same time whilst it's an indisputable fact there's something deeply mysterious not mysterious as in shadowy, 
uncertain. Sometimes we talk about a murder mystery. It's, it's uncertain. We don't know. No, we absolutely know this happened. But the word mystery means we just can't get our head around it. How can you understand how a God that we cannot see becomes visible? A God who is unmeasurable lives for 33 years. These things, we can't take them in. We've got such small, puny minds. Paul has to say to Timothy, great is the unfathomable, incomprehensible plan of God that God should become man without a shadow of a doubt. Great is the mystery of godliness, incarnation wonder. Do you know I use this phrase carefully? I want to blow your mind this morning. I want the things that we consider to stretch your mind, to expand your mind, to be able to take in a bit more of what is incomprehensible to the limited, finite mind. We look at these things every year, don't we? We come back, and I'm not particularly one for the festival of Christmas, but there are good things about it. We give, we spend time together, but much better than that, we take the opportunity to lift up Christ. We exalt his name together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, said Psalm 34. But each year we come, we see something new, something fresh, something we've not seen before. I've been very struck this year looking at these things, how the Lord Jesus Christ was a refugee. We'll think a bit more about that tonight. He went to Egypt, and that was a prophecy of the country that he would go into, as we shall consider shortly. He was a refugee, the Son of God, the one who made the world, had no home in life, and he had to flee from his country because it wasn't safe. Isn't that astonishing? The Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at some of these things. I've got three headings again. They all begin with P, the clear purposes of the incarnation, the astonishing prophecies of the incarnation, some perhaps you've not considered, and the amazing paradoxes. Something that's a paradox, it's a truth, but it seems to contradict. It can't be true. And yet it is. So let's look at the purposes of the incarnation. Why did Christ come? Why did he have to come? Why was there no other way for him to solve the problem? The problem of God. We have a problem, sin. But you know, God had a problem too. 
How could he be just and loving and merciful and yet holy at the same time? That verse in Psalm 85, isn't it wonderful? Truth and righteousness and mercy and peace kissed each other. They were reconciled in the fact that Christ became man. The first purpose is to reveal something of the Father. We've sung it. We can't see God. How can we really know about him? How can we know of his glory? It had to be revealed. Otherwise, we might become mystics, and many people do. They just imagine. They make it up. They think. They see a picture and they look beyond. No, we don't want that. We want truth, solid, foundational truth based upon what Christ said and did and what Christ was and is. If you want a text for this, John seventeen twenty five. He came to reveal the Father, what God is like, what God requires of you and me. Christ came to teach it. Secondly, he came to identify. Oh, this is precious. If Christ had remained in heaven, how would we trust in a Savior that knew and understood what it was like to be frail and weak and human. Christ had to become flesh. John 1.14 He was made flesh to identify so that he could feel the feeling of our infirmities. As it says, he knew what it was to be sick. He knew what it was to have his mind full of duties and obligations too much to do, not enough hours in the day. He knew that. He identified. He came and had the experiences that we have every day. And all the situations of life. Thirdly, he came to break the curse. We're under a curse. Women, you know the curse in childbirth, in daily life. And men, we know the curse. We have particular problems. We, but we all have problems. But the curse, because man and women fell, we're living every day with the consequences of the fall. And Christ came to break it, to shatter it, to break the chains, to lift the blinkers. He came to defeat Satan, to defeat death, to take sorrow away. He came in some respects to take sickness away. He came as well to fulfill the law. You see, we have to obey the law, but we can't. Who can obey the law? You can't. You never have, you never will. The best person here this morning has broken God's law today. 
Who can fulfill that law? The law that Christ gave, he then kept. On my behalf, for me, because I can't. And he came to shed his blood. There is no forgiveness for you unless there's blood shed. Not your blood, it's not good enough. It must be the blood of a perfect saviour. And he came, a word we use but it's important, vicariously to bear our punishment, that means, instead of me, as a substitute. He stood in my place and he was condemned, vicarious, on my behalf, in my place, he was punished. Do you know, people go to places of worship today and they light candles. They think that it does some good. They say a prayer and they hold the beads, the rosary beads, and they do other things. In Hinduism, there are 500 more gods and they have to placate the gods. They have to bring food and flowers. But you know the only way that my sin can be taken away is if somebody stands in my place once and for all. And that's what Christ did. There's a seventh reason, purpose, why he came to reveal truth in all its glory, to reveal grace. How would we know how to live if it wasn't through the words which came from Christ's mouth and the grace and the example? So he came because he had to come. That's one of the wonders of the incarnation. He came because there were so many reasons why he had to came, come and he fulfilled every one of them. That's the purpose. Secondly, we could dwell on this and I won't. Do you know in the Old Testament there are so many prophecies. Some of them are obscure. You need to look at them carefully. We're not going to turn to the obvious ones. Genesis 3.15, he would be born of a woman. He wouldn't just appear. He would have a real birth through Mary. He would be of the line of Abraham. You can turn to it if you wish. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. This is an astonishing prophecy in a lot of detail. What would this plan, this great mystery of godliness, how would it be unveiled? Who would it be unveiled to? Whose family? It's so specific. The Lord appeared to Abraham. Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those that bless thee. Abraham, Father Abraham, the father of the faith. People would bless Abraham and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee, in your seed, in your children's children's children, shall all families 
of the earth be blessed. Of all the families in the world, one was chosen. Just one. Do you know the probability of that is so remote? That's one prophecy. Then, don't turn to it, but Genesis 17, 19, it wouldn't just be of the seed of Abraham. It would be a descendant of Isaac, and then, fourthly, Jacob, and then it would be of one tribe, not twelve, one tribe, the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49.10. But let me show you a more obscure prophecy, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, let's just look at this prophecy together, 2 Samuel 7 and verses 12 and 13, we have to look at these because the Lord Jesus said, you didn't believe the prophets that spoke of me, you didn't believe Moses, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12. When thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, this is speaking to David, when you die, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build an house. For my name, speaking of his son, Solomon, but of his greater son, Christ. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, this wasn't just Solomon. He died. His kingdom failed. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, David's greater son, the heir to David's eternal throne. The kingdom that grows and grows and grows. Every other kingdom has fallen. It will fall. The kingdoms of darkness will fall. The empires will fall. But the kingdom of Christ, every single day, I believe there is one more added at least to the kingdom which was promised to David. Let's look at another one. You don't need to turn to it, Psalm 45, 6 and 7, but perhaps Daniel chapter 2. Perhaps we'll go there. Daniel chapter 2, this is well known. This is speaking of the kingdom that will come. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44 In those days, speaking of the future, in those days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. This isn't speaking of Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. This is speaking of Christ. The kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Is there somebody this morning? Your faith is low. Your faith is weak. 
You're worried about global empires, nuclear weapons. You're worried about the kings and the presidents and the prime ministers of this world. Don't worry about that. God's kingdom is being set up forever. And it will trample underfoot every other kingdom. And it will consume every other kingdom. And God's kingdom shall stand forever. Fear not, O little flock. Fear not is the words that the Lord Jesus speaks. We think of the prophecies in Isaiah 7. They're well known. This coming Savior will be born of a virgin. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. But have you ever seen this prophecy? Turn to Hosea. Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. After Daniel, you'll find Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. What will happen to this child early in the child's life? Hosea 11.1 1, When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. What does that mean? This one that I love, this is speaking of Christ. I loved him and I called him. Word came to his parents. We'll look at it tonight. Matthew 2.13 Wait in Egypt until the word comes. And then I'll call you out. When Herod's died, you will be called out of Egypt. He was sent to Egypt because Herod said, I'll kill all the baby boys. But when the word came, he will be called out of Egypt. That's an astonishing promise and prophecy. The kingdom will be set up. Christ will be born. He'll become a refugee. He'll go to Egypt. And then I will call him out of Egypt. He won't be born there. Oh no, he can't be born in Egypt. He had to be born in Bethlehem. Why? Micah 5 Verse 2, little Bethlehem, nondescript little village in the back end of beyond. The probability of all these prophecies being fulfilled one on top of another, one family, Abraham, one tribe out of twelve, one little village in the middle of nowhere, a child called out of Egypt, it's absurd. It's a mystery. You can't make sense of it unless God planned it, which of course he did. Let me show you one more. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 15. Jeremiah 31 and verse 15. The place 
where Christ will be born, there will be a child massacre. Thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Rama, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rahel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. I won't explain the verse in detail, but this is speaking of where Christ would be born, Herod would destroy the children. This is 800 years before Christ came to Bethlehem. There would be weeping. There would be weeping for her children. Verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord, and they shall come again from the land of the enemy, Egypt. Christ, Joseph, Mary, will come again. Verse 17, And there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border, their own country, this is astonishing. This is the wonder of the incarnation planned long ago, layer upon layer. I could have given you 47 prophecies in the Old Testament. Some of them are so plain, they're so obvious. Some of them you need to do a bit more digging. But these have been recognized through the centuries. This is Christ saying, make no mistake, God will become man. He had to come. He authenticates his coming by making it so clear there will be false Christs. There still are today. But make no mistake, you will know Christ is coming and Christ has come. Well, let's think thirdly, not just of the purposes and the promises and prophecies, but what about these paradoxes? Children, these used to fascinate me. If you can get one in your mind, they're almost like riddles. We were bringing the children to the teenage meeting on Friday evening, and one boy, he's not here today, he was telling me these riddles one after the other, after the other. Amazing, he'd memorized them. You try and put some of these paradoxes in your mind. Just take this in. The infinite becomes finite. The immortal, the one who knows no death, no decay, no deterioration, becomes mortal wrinkled, subject to the aging process. The creator becomes a creature. The one that made all things becomes one who was begotten of the Father. The one who supports the whole universe, he sustains the whole universe, the weather, the food, the planets, the stars, the atmosphere, 
had to be carried by his mother. The invisible becomes visible. The one who never sleeps, slept. The one who made the oceans became thirsty. The omniscient God who knows all things, it was said of him, he grew in wisdom. He learned like you and I have to. The one who is the heir of the universe became Joseph's despised son. The one who was rich beyond all splendor became poor, all for love's sake. The one who loves like no other became the hated and the scoffed at. The one who lives on a throne as we picture it in our minds came to a stable and then a cross. This is a mystery. The one who was the ruler of the universe, sovereign ruler of the skies, paid his taxes, obeyed his parents, followed the authorities willingly, The one who had total power, omnipotent, became weak and lowly. Can you take these things in? There used to be a man who went and did tent missions. He came to Bedford. One of our friends that comes often in the evening was one of the people that organized these tent missions. His name was Dick Saunders. He had a radio ministry all over the world, Transworld Radio. I can remember him preaching. He used to move a bit around on the pulpit. You'd have to follow him with your eyes. And he would speak of the incarnation and he would say, the wonder of it all never ceases to amaze me. He would say this almost every time he preached and it stuck in your mind. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. One question. How should we respond to incarnation wonder? Well, shouldn't we be like Mary, a sinful woman, where the perfect seed was impregnated into her, She couldn't take it in. She pondered. She was confused. How can it be? It's too incredible. It's too wonderful. I can't believe it. That's the same struggle that many of us have with faith. I can't believe in a God I can't see. I can't believe in a Bible that was written two, three, four thousand years ago. How can it be? But Mary surrendered. She was told not to fear. She was told that it would be just as she was promised. And it was. And it will be. Is there someone here, these things, you've never really taken them in. They're knowledge, they're facts. 
but you've not seen the mystery. You've not seen the wonder. You've not been gripped by it. You've not seen this is the purpose of life, that you should know your God and know your Creator. Well, what happened to Mary? Confused? Pondering? Disbelief? Wanted to run away? What will happen to me? She falls in love and wonder. And she worships the one who is inside her that she cannot see. She had faith that what was yet unseen and unfelt would soon be seen and would be felt. And that it would be just as she was told. She trusted her uncertain, so uncertain future. She could have been a public example. She could have been a scandal. But she trusted that it would be just as she was told. She trusted to travel to Egypt. She trusted her husband. She bowed to his rule. Come with me. I've heard. I'll go. How astonishing. And yet she believed. And she put her infant faith as probably just a 14, 15 year old girl into the one inside her. And her life was the journey of faith that we all go on when we reach that crisis of saying, no more doubts, no more fear. I exercise faith in the God I cannot see, the God who was manifest in the flesh. What a mystery. How astonishing. This deserves our love and wonder and praise. May that be so today. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Let's sing our closing hymn this morning. Number 180.